In our first episode on The Tempest, we touched on the extraordinary scope of this tightly constructed play, the wealth of motifs it shares with many of Shakespeare's plays, the range of emotions it confronts, and the diversity of tone and locale. Are we in the old world, the new world, or an unreal world? Are we awake, asleep, or enchanted? And how do these questions affect the play's profound inquiry into responsibility, freedom, and forgiveness? Guiding our discussion is Laurie Maguire, Professor of English at the University of Oxford. There's a lot of critical ink spilt over arguing about it's a New World play or it's a European play. And the answer is clearly there are tantalising hints to both, aren't there? We've got all these European references, Milan, Naples, Tunis, Carthage, Sycorax comes from Algeria. But we've got the kind of all the New World references, the, the brave New World that's invoked by Miranda, the reference to the Bermudas, the Patagonian god Setebus that Sycorax worshipped, and, and, and Prospero's enslavement of a native, and Trinculo's plan to exploit Caliban by exhibition, which is what Europeans did with Amerindians. So basically, we have to dislocate this play. It plays around with references, but it doesn't locate itself. The play is ambiguous not only in its physical space, but also in its mental space. Ferdinand is mesmerised by Ariel's music. Alonso and his followers fall into a magic sleep and fits of madness. Many of the characters invoke dreams and move in and out of altered states of reality. Part of this play is realistic and part of it is very stylized. On the one hand, you can see the play as this science fiction technical world of another planet, uninhabited island. But at the same time, it has a kind of dreamlike quality about it. There are so many scenes that end with characters saying, I feel like I'm dreaming or I don't quite get this. So there's a very hypnotic effect, a very kind of narcotic feel to the play. It's like we've just entered the land of the lotus eaters. If we go right back to when we're talking about the geography of the play, that's what dislocates the play from its geography, that we are we are in this, well, dream world. And for me, the play works best when you set it in one of those suspended states, whether it's underwater or dreaming or drugged or, or whatever. But I think it's not realistic. It's not an identifiable place. Is the play an analysis of real world colonial practices? A symbolic representation of an inner spiritual journey? These are interpretive questions raised by the setting and tone. The play's structure raises similar questions, pairing parallel events and prompting us to ask how they compare. It's constantly giving us the same situation over and over again. So we've got a good father and a bad mother, the good father Prospero, the bad Sycorax. We've got a good brother and a bad brother. We've got the good child and the monstrous child, Miranda versus Caliban, or maybe Ariel versus Caliban. The good servant, the bad one. We've got white magic, black magic. These pairings might seem to emphasise differences, sharpening the categories that distinguish each member, white, black, good, bad. But in fact, the pairings also reveal similarities, similarities that make it harder to know how to judge these characters. 
it's conventional to see prosperous magic as, you know, artful, good, sort of academic ambition versus the charms of Sycorax. But we've got the very disturbing parallels because both Sycorax and Prospero are banished figures. Both Ferdinand and Caliban want Miranda. Caliban tried to take her. Ferdinand is chastely holding off. But the fact that we see them doing the parallel activities of hauling logs, again, troubles any clear-cut distinction between them. So this play overlaps its characters that make us troublingly aware of how good and bad are not necessarily separate categories. We find another important parallel in how the play replays the overthrow of rulers. We're interested in authority and overthrowing authority. And we've got this action replay in two ways, really, because we're now going to get the Naples usurpation, the way we had a Milanese usurpation. And then we've got Stefano and Trinculo about to overthrow with Caliban Prospero on the island. We've got this continual replay of overthrow of authority. Three attempts at usurpation. If we ask only whether these moments are similar or different, we're asking important political questions. The buffoonish Stefano and Trinculo, who want to kill Prospero and keep Caliban in subjection, have no real claim to the island. The hard-hearted Sebastian and Antonio seem no more justified in their plot to assassinate Alonso while he sleeps. We might infer that all three usurpations are wrong, including Antonio's overthrow of Prospero. But then we remember a fourth example, Caliban's subjugation by Prospero. For I am all the subjects that you have, Caliban says bitterly, which first was mine own king. Was Prospero just as wrong to depose Caliban as Antonio was to depose him? Of course, Prospero insists that Caliban deservedly lost his liberty by attacking Miranda. But did Prospero, in some way, also deserve to lose his dukedom? What is it that makes a rebellion illicit or just? Those are examples of just one very large question about authority, ownership, mastery, subjection, good rulership. Clearly, Prospero was negligent when he was Duke of Milan. By spending all his time studying, he allowed his brother's nature to become bad. Prospero bears a lot of responsibility. If we're part of an ecosystem, an emotional ecosystem, how you behave has effects on how other people behave. So then you can't just turn the blame round on them. And this is where the word colonizer becomes very helpful. But I'm thinking in its etymological Latin sense, you know, what's my responsibility as a colonus, a gardener, an agricultural person, a farmer? We all need to cultivate our own gardens and then we'll be better equipped when we show up on desert islands to know how to deal with the people and the land that we find there. As Shakespeare was writing this play, Europeans were engaging in the transatlantic slave trade and colonising parts of North, Central and South America. European accounts often, though not always, described the peoples of Africa and the Americas as barbaric, an implicit justification for seizing their land and their labour. Shakespeare channels and reinforces some of his culture's most disturbing ideas about racial and cultural others in how he represents Caliban. 
the first folio description of Caliban describes him as a savage and deformed slave. He is talked about as a misshapen knave and brutish. Shakespeare represents Caliban as foul-mouthed, foul-smelling, prone to drunkenness and, more seriously, unapologetic about his attempt to rape Miranda. But Caliban also shares intensely in human feelings and in predictable human responses to subjugation. He's got a very strong sense of betrayal by Prospero, that he shared all the secrets of the Isle and then he attempted to rape Miranda. And there's a school of thought that says, how would he know not to, unless he had been taught not to? So where is the culpability there? You know, he feels that Prospero let him down. Caliban shares his feelings in language that can communicate great poetry as well as great anger. Caliban dreams, Caliban weeps, Caliban appreciates beauty. You've got Caliban's wonderful discussion of language. You taught me language and my profit on it is I know how to curse. I can use this back against you. The first act that any invading power does over another country, you deny them their native language and you give them a new language because that's how you enslave people. There's something so wonderfully beautiful and ironic about Caliban speaking English and doing it so poetically. You know, you taught me how to name the bigger light and the lesser, as if he is now giving the invader back something that is far more than the invader gave him. In the 20th and 21st centuries, as European empires were dismantled, many African, Caribbean and Latin American writers have chosen to speak through Caliban's voice as a way of responding to Shakespeare's play in the colonial project that Prospero seems to represent. But what Prospero represents has also been subject to debate. Readers over time have offered wildly different answers. Prospero has changed a lot during the course of my lifetime. There was, you know, this fantastically beneficent view of him as the artist. And in the last decades, he is the horrible little invader, the the colonizer. He's gone from one extreme, Prospero as Shakespeare, uh, to Prospero as colonizer. As a figure who conjures up a play through his art, Prospero the magician seems like a natural analogue for the playwright. And when Prospero says, our revels now are ended and my charms are all overthrown, it's hard not to hear a coded message from Shakespeare himself, who would retire from the stage shortly after writing this play. But the magician-playwright parallel doesn't answer other important questions about Prospero. He can control powerful magical forces, but the play also focuses on what he cannot do or what he struggles to do. Prospero is the magician figure. He can create a storm. He can bring his enemies to the island. He can make Ferdinand meet Miranda. He cannot make them fall in love. When his brother shows up, he hasn't got the power to make his brother contrite and repent. So how do you affect human beings? 
is, is such a big question. How does the human heart work? The question of the human heart is most clearly expressed in an exchange between Prospero and Ariel. Since the beginning of the play, perhaps since his exile, Prospero has focused on vengeance. Now, Ariel has driven his enemies nearly into madness. Your charm so strongly works them, Ariel says, that if you now beheld them, your affections would become tender. Dost thou think so, spirit? says Prospero. Mine would, sir, were I human, Ariel replies. That moment with Ariel is the moment of turning, isn't it? Where he is having to look into his own heart and his own emotions and his own affections for the first time. And it's such an unexpected moment because all of a sudden is Prospero now talking about his responses rather than his controlling actions. And the struggle within him is that though with their high wrongs I'm struck to the quick, yet with my nobler reason against my fury do I take part. And when he talks about his fury, that that is what we have seen for five acts, is the angry Prospero, the angry brother, the angry father, the angry potential father-in-law. We could take Ariel's words to mean it is natural or normal for humans to show compassion to each other. It's a beautiful sentiment, but we've also seen a good deal of treachery and anger from the humans in this play. Perhaps it's more truthful to say that humans can and should feel pity. With this, Prospero seems to agree. He agrees to treat his enemies kindly, saying... The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. And rarer here means not only less common, but also more excellent, more desirable. At the play's end, Prospero is reunited with his brother. Alonso finds his son is alive. Both fathers celebrate their children's planned marriage. And Prospero is given back his dukedom. But the work of repentance and forgiveness the work of the human heart, seems not quite over. We've got the King of Naples saying, I, I resign you your dukedom back. But Antonio doesn't voluntarily offer anything. That's deeply troubling, isn't it? Is he harbouring resentment that he's just been caught out? Prospero, he forgives his brother in a line that reminds his brother of all, all the things he's done wrong. You know, I forgive your faults. All of them, all the really bad things you did. Don't worry, I've forgotten about them. No, he hasn't. I mean, that's not convincing at all. Prospero struggles to pardon Antonio. Perhaps he is also struggling to admit that he might need pardon too. When he confronts Antonio, he points to his brother's rankest fault. But earlier, Prospero told Miranda that his own actions awaked an evil nature in my false brother. It comes back to cultivation, doesn't it? That he can't sort out his enemies until he's sorted out himself. I would say I think he's been carrying guilt throughout the play. That the whole setup in Milan was because of him. He prized his books above his dukedom. That is negligent government. He's known that from the beginning. And that's what he's had to come to terms with. Prospero may also have to come to terms with his treatment of Caliban. Caliban has attempted to overthrow him just as Antonio did. But when Prospero exposes Caliban's plot, he says, 
This thing of darkness I acknowledge mine. Elsewhere, Shakespeare uses the word acknowledge to mean recognise as one's child. Prospero may see that he created some of the darkness in Caliban by the way he treated him, just as he helped beget the falsehood in Antonio. It leaves you thinking, wow, does Caliban go back to Milan with Prospero? I kind of think he does, but there are lots of productions where he doesn't. Is he slave? Is he free? Prospero struggles with granting both forgiveness and freedom. Ariel is always asking to be free. Prospero only frees him in the play's last lines. He pardons Antonio while calling him most wicked sir. Perhaps this struggle, his still imperfect generosity, is one more fault that Prospero recognises in himself. In any case, he does seem to ask the audience for pardon in the epilogue through the metaphor of freedom. Release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. One of Shakespeare's most characteristic strategies as an artist is the way he leaves us uncertain about key elements of his plays. Because of its strange, mixed nature, reading sometimes as realism, sometimes as allegory, The Tempest presents us this uncertainty at a new scale. It has been read as a dark parable of colonialism and as a transcendent vision of spiritual renewal. One could say that the really beautiful and positive leitmotif is the line that Ferdinand has when he says, though the seas threaten, they are merciful. And, you know, that's such a wonderful definition of the late plays where human beings mess up and they get given a second chance. Now, you can see why Victorian critic like Dowden and lots of critics ever since have seen this as a very mellow, mature, ironic kind of Shakespearean vision of the late plays. It's about generosity. And certainly when I was an undergraduate in the 70s, the conventional way of reading this play was about Christian allegories. You have to cross a body of water. It was seen as a metaphor for baptism and you know, a new human being. I think it's very hard to read the play that way now. I mean, Prospero talks about being in despair at the end. It's part of the questions about Prospero that we start with at the beginning. You know, is he a tyrant or is he someone who's been hard done by? Is he a good magician? Why is he giving up his magic? I end this play with as many questions as I began. They're just different questions. The deep moral ambiguities of The Tempest flow from so many other questions about the play, where it takes place, what kind of reality we're in, and even which genre it is. Shakespeare is just throwing everything in there. Science fiction, morality, allegory. So he is giving us a play that flirts with being one genre and then decides to go in a different direction. Prospero's acting out his revenge. And all of a sudden at the end, it says, actually, I think I'll go for the forgiveness route. It's pulling back. And then the question you ask is, so why? Why is he doing this? Partly, it is his own showman's tricks late in his career about 
let me just see how much I can play around with convention. But there is also, I think, the genuine, serious, I want to keep you on your toes so that you're always thinking about why, what does this mean, and where is it going? And that's actually a profoundly ethical question. One of the things that Shakespeare gets increasingly interested in as his career goes on is the difficulty of coming to quick judgments. He's creating a world in which we cannot be sure of anything, not even the genre of the play we are in. So we have to question everything as it comes along, and that means questioning the ethical stance of Prospero. I think the Tempest is very interested in, well, here's what the perspective looks like from, from um, Prospero's point of view. If you're Caliban, you have got a completely reasonable alternative perspective. Both those voices get equal airing in this play. And it's that kind of perspectival glimpsing that the Tempest is playing around with. And that's why it doesn't give us answers, because it wants us to look at it from, you know, the front door, the back door, the window, and, and then see what we make of it. And that's how the Tempest works for me. Anytime I'm about to formulate an opinion or a judgment, the ground shifts underneath my feet and I have to start rethinking and uh, taking another perspective. And I think the experience of watching The Tempest is a profoundly uncomfortable experience. It's full of conundrums. It's full of loose ends. It's full of knots that really don't get untied ethically. Nothing in this play is clear cut. And that is an intellectually very destabilizing feeling. And I mean, as Shakespeare said in the, you know, the problem plays, the web of our life is a mingled yarn, good and and ill mixed together. This play is the mingled yarn par excellence. In our next episode, we'll look closely at some of the play's most tangled moments, the extraordinary poetry spoken by someone who claimed his only profit from language was knowing how to curse, an equally poetic vision of the world coming to an end, and a man who has defined himself through his magical power, now offering to give that power up. 